Welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast, a podcast that equips therapists to thrive in business, expand their reach, and create flourishing and meaningful lives, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Claire Blakey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice. I believe in being a multi-passionate therapist. You can have a thriving, financially impactful business, be a leader in the community, and also a business entrepreneur. You don't have to choose, and your impact as a clinician can go beyond the therapy room. I believe that you can be a therapist and an entrepreneur, a therapreneur, and I believe that every therapist deserves the tools, community, and resources to build thriving businesses and flourishing lives. I pair my passion and previous career in PR, marketing, and blogging with my education and experience as a clinician to equip therapists like you who are multi-passionate and wanting to pursue additional opportunities to grow your skill set and expand your reach. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's create impact and build flourishing lives and businesses we're proud of. Here we go. Hi, Pauline, and welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast. I am so glad you're here today. If you could take a moment and just introduce yourself so that the audience knows who you are, about your experiences, and what brought you into the field. Absolutely. I am so honored to be here, Claire. I'm really excited to share my experience. Um, I was telling you that it's really nice to make official what I like talking about anyway when I get together with friends and colleagues. My name is Pauline Yegnazar Peck. I'm a licensed psychologist. I have a private practice here in Santa Barbara, so I'm licensed in California as well as licensed in New York. And I come from having two masters and then choosing the PhD. So I've had about a decade of graduate school experience. I didn't know from the get-go that I wanted to be a clinician and I started with sociology. So I have a master's in sociology and race and ethnic relations, really always interested in identity and how the internal, the intra, you know, intrapsychic and the interpsychic interacts with society at large. And so that was kind of my entree into this. And then after, some personal experiences with therapy, I really thought, I don't just want to study people. I want to work with them. And so switched over after getting that first master's to getting a master's in marriage and family therapy and just my love of research and maybe wanting at some point to be an academic, I decided to go and get the PhD. And so I got a PhD in counseling psychology. So it was a, you know, 10 years in both doing the clinical work as well as lots of experience with community mental health agencies and university counseling centers. So I got a lot of variety and lots of different um, kinds of presenting issues and lots of different settings, some more resource, some less resource. And about three and a half years ago at this point, almost it'll be four years in April of 2022, I started a private practice and ended up just kind of taking that leap of faith. And it really has been a leap of faith and has changed a lot over over the last three or four years. So that's kind of where I am now. Oh my gosh. So you have had like so many layers and years of experience. Like I'm thinking, you know, most people I'm imagining that are listening to this might have one graduate degree. Maybe that is a PhD. Maybe that is, you know, a master's in clinical psychology, but you have two masters and a doctorate, which is so impressive. And I love that piece. I'm sure there's so much more to your story, but 
I feel like a lot of what the flourishing therapeneur is, is someone that's multi-passionate, someone that, you know, is always learning and always evolving and always growing. And like, I am wondering, so you have your MFT license and you have your other license, right? So did you, you had to do both hours? Like this, walk me through your experience. Absolutely. So after I got my master's in marriage and family therapy, I had this decision. It was out a fork in the road, whether to get licensed as a marriage and family therapist or go directly into my PhD program. So I decided not to get the MFT license, go straight into my PhD program. So while I have my master's in marriage and family therapy, I'm only licensed as a psychologist. And so it was kind of a decision to start that track and I got to use some of my MFT classes for my PhD. Didn't really shorten it because as you talked about, I am a multi-passionate person. So I ended up just tacking on more classes and doing more clinical work, but it did, it did allow me to start immediately seeing clients. Whereas in PhD programs, sometimes it takes a year or two for you to begin that. And really, I think it can feel from the outset, like, oh, how impressive. She has all these degrees, but part of it is also, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be doing. And so I would, I'd make those decisions based on where I was. And as I was in it and I was changing, something else would come up. And so it's like that shift from sociology to psychology was my mom dying and really getting that therapy myself and saying, this is what feels most meaningful. This is the work with people where I get to bring in all of that sociological kind of knowledge. And then in my master's program, there was a sense of, I'd like to lead and I'd like to teach and I'd potentially like to be an Mm -hmm. academic. So a lot of my PhD program I was teaching both at my university, ASU, as well as in the local community college. So I was always in that teaching realm where I was teaching psychology, teaching sociology, teaching gender and kind of feminist studies. And so there was this sense of, I didn't quite know what I wanted to be doing, but I really didn't truncate my choices and tried to take on a lot of differing things. And realizing now that those are all a part of my professional identity. They've just been in differing amounts at different times. So when I first started my private practice, I did kind of, you know, buffer some of that leap with making sure I was teaching a few classes. So I knew that that was stable income. I knew that had some structure to it and I built the clinical work around it. And so the fact that I have a variety of kind of skill sets that I can tap into have really been useful for one, keeping me engaged, but also making sure I have multiple sources of income, especially when I'm taking a big jump into something new. Yeah. Well, and that's such an important piece to consider, right? Because everybody has bills and rent and life and all the different uh, financial components that go into, you know, being alive and taking care of yourself and your family and all the pieces. Um, so it sounds like you've been very strategic. You've taken big leaps and you've pursued what you're passionate about and what you're feeling called to, but you also are like looking at all the different angles of it, of, you know, what can be my solid income while I grow my clinical income or, you know, really, yeah, really, it sounds like a calculated step, a calculated risk. Um, I'm wondering if you would feel comfortable just kind of sharing a little bit about, because it sounds like you've accrued lots of different clinical hours and experiences. And for Mm -hmm. anyone listening that's either pre-licensed or maybe they're currently at an agency or any different offerings, um, what were your experiences and like, how did that shape you and how did that start building the foundation for your private practice? Yeah, absolutely. During my training, 
I, I remember early on feeling like this is when I can take the biggest risks because I'm really supported. So I feel so blessed mm-hmm. that I got really good supervision. I had one-to-one supervision throughout my master's program, as well as my doctoral program on top of group supervision. So I had a lot of support from the top down, support from other clinicians that I really respected and admired and who, who had my back. And so I remember early on thinking, how do I push myself? Like, even if I'm not going to work with teens in a residential vocational center, how do I say yes to that opportunity where there's a lot of SI, where there are crises happening left and right, where it's a population with a lot of different kind of social obstacles that they're facing? Um, How do I say yes to those opportunities, even if I'm not saying yes to working with that population forever so that I can grow? Because this is the time I have the most support. And so I remember early on just feeling that support behind me um, and feeling like I can, I can say yes to taking on more than I might if I were alone. And so I was that person as a trainee that said yes to almost every opportunity. Sometimes it was hard to think about, okay, how do I, how do I say yes really diligently, but also say no in the areas where I need to take care of myself and not overwork. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely the one where, you know, in our training center that was housed within our department in my PhD program, most people didn't want to work with couples because we didn't get a lot of couples and family training in my PhD program, but I got that from my MFT days. So I would say yes to all these, you know, really conflictual couples, couples in, in like a custody issue. And they'd be like, Oh, who's going to say yes to this? Pauline is. And so I would say yes to that because I get the hourly supervision plus the two hours of individual, plus two hours of group, plus we video recorded every single session. And I got to really look at what I was doing, what I wasn't doing, and to hone hone it. And so I remember feeling this sense that it's okay to leap when I'm training because I've got so much more support than I'm going to have in 10 years when I'm, I'm licensed and maybe mid, mid-career. And so I said yes to a lot of varied things. I worked at the, like I said, the residential vocational center. I worked at another community mental health agency. I worked at a homeless shelter. I worked at a high school in um, kind of South Central in Los Angeles, right by USC. Um, And then I did a lot of university counseling center work. I love teaching, development, growth, learning. I love being both teacher and student. And the wonderful thing about university counseling centers is there's so much variety it's a really generalist kind of training. I like to say my 9 a.m. had chronic depression. My 10 a.m. was presenting with eating disorder issues. My noon was coming in with test anxiety. My 2 o'clock was looking at family dynamics for the first time. And my 3 o'clock was struggling with suicidal ideation and needed to be hospitalized. I mean, that's a really regular day in a university mm-hmm. counseling center. And again, I had the support of knocking on my supervisor's door, who sometimes was right next door and saying, I need a consult. And so I think I got a lot of variety, maybe not as much in settings. I've never had inpatient kind of experience because that just wasn't available in either my master's program or my PhD program, but I got variety in terms of presenting concerns. And I also said yes to, and created a lot of groups. So groups for yoga groups for stress, um, groups for anxiety, groups for depression, groups for substance use, groups that, you know, I don't work with substance use now really. And 
yet back then I I would say yes to either leading or co-leading and pour over the literature and just say, I'm, I don't know how to do this, but I'm really interested in learning. And I think that kind of mentality is not just useful when you're a trainee, but also when you're licensed to say, how will I ever get good at something that I want to be good at if I don't say yes from the beginning to being a student, to learning? And I feel blessed that I had the support and that there were a variety of the presenting concerns and flexibility in the agencies that I worked at to create something new or to be a part of something that I hadn't been a part of before, like a DBT group or a group for trans students um, or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a workshop where I could come up with my own wellness ideas and pitch them. And they were like, great, you start next Tuesday, you know, put up flyers around yeah. campus. And so there's been a lot of support, but also me saying, look at me. Yes, I'm taking initiative. I'd like to learn. And that eagerness to learn and that kind of mentality that everything can help shape what you're going to do, that was front of mind rather than I had a really predetermined, calculated population in mind that I needed to serve. That 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 came a lot later. It's kind of where I am now. But in the beginning, it was just saying yes to as many different presenting things as I could and getting support so that I could do it well or that I could learn well. I love that. And I feel like there's that piece that you're kind of speaking into, whether it's someone that's pre-licensed and accruing their hours, but having the courage to make mistakes. Like I, I love that you kind of highlighted that piece of like, that's the time to to learn, you have someone to, you know, supervise you, to consult you, to, to give you the feedback that you need, whether that's because it's recorded and they can kind of, you know, critique or give, um, you know, tidbits of wisdom and all that, um, that being the time to, to really avail of being a beginner to, you know, avail of supervision and support. But also what I really like about what you're talking about is, it sounds like not only was that good in that season, but it sounds like it kind of built this muscle for you of believing in yourself, of saying, I don't know how to do this, but I'll figure it out. I will launch a group next week and I will figure out how to market it. I will figure out how to get my my clients through the door. I will you know, challenge myself and get out of my comfort zone a little bit to take on a client or a population that isn't always maybe what I'm necessarily passionate about, but there's value in learning that and there's value in putting myself out there. So I think that's a really great heartbeat for anyone that's listening of whether it's, you know, putting themselves out there for a traineeship site or whether that is, you know, getting their feet wet in private practice or maybe a different entrepreneurial endeavor um, and really letting themselves be a beginner, letting themselves learn and kind of fail forward. And um, yeah, you don't know until you try. And it sounds like you're kind of grit and your gumption was like, I'm going to try and I might as well, because here I am. And if I don't try, then it's not going to grow. It's not going to, you know, take me further. Um, I'm wondering because when you described kind of the headspace you were in of like almost this reputation that you built of like, you'll say yes to the, to the couple that no one wants or to the, you know, client that, you know, maybe other people are timid about. Um, did that come with any downfalls or any lessons? Because, I know for me, I'm also a yes person. And sometimes that means burnout or that means not being aware of my needs. I'm looking at other people's needs. I'm looking at, okay, that client needs help, but I'm not thinking about that's actually going to be one more client too many on my day or my caseload. So could you kind of speak into any of your experiences through your clinical hours or even currently of lessons that you're learning in terms of saying yes, but also recognizing when the best yes is no? Absolutely. That has been 
it's a continuing challenge in terms of really making sure my yeses are emphatic yeses and saying absolutely rather than I could do that, right? Because I think I can look at most experiences as, oh, you're going to learn something from that, Pauline. And yet what is best is not always to say yes to it. And so I really do see the shift when I was a trainee where it was like more is more. I was eager for clinical hours. I was eager for trading experiences. And so if there was a new client and I'm already there for eight hours, it's like, okay, let's do this. And I'll figure out a way to make my clinical notes shorter, which I got really, really good at. I'm on a two minute note now. And part of that is just so that oh it can gosh. fit with the rest of my day. Right? I know, but it, it's, it is this sense of, it, it's not just the burnout. It's making sure that just because I can, doesn't mean it's best for me. And if it's not best for me, then it might not be best for the client. And so there was this shift from the, the biggest shift from saying yes, as a trainee, where you've got the support, your schedule is sometimes made for you. There's, there are certain structural limits. I couldn't be at certain agencies past five o'clock, right? Or I shared an office with somebody else who needed to use it afterwards. And so my yeses had certain, uh, imposed structures and limits around them. Whereas in private practice, when you say yes, there's nothing holding you back from seeing that client at nine o'clock at night if you want to. And so that was a real shift for me because I was so used to saying yes, but I also had that safety net, the limitations. It's almost like, I like to think of it as when you work in an agency, you have a lot of support, but it's very invisible at times. And you don't really see that because you're not the one creating it. I didn't create the hours of operation for the building or figure out the you know office schedule or structure and how people were going to share the office space. But in private practice, you are creating all of that. And so you start realizing, oh, when I say yes, I have to also set those limits. I have to set those parameters. I have to think about what's best for me. And that was a really big shift. And I will say one of the main ways I learned that was through the way we usually learn was pain. I took on some oh. clients that were probably not right for me. They were just not right for me. And that the misfit between the clients that I took on and what I was able to provide or what I could provide as a solo practitioner without that supervisor next door, I could knock on the door without the protections of building um, privacy and security, there were there were actually some dangerous elements to taking on clients with you know for whom I, I wasn't the right fit and who probably needed a higher level of care. And that was a big aha for me. It was like Pauline, you did all of that yes saying and the training, but you also did it in such a safe way where a lot of those things were set up. Now you've got to set those up for yourself. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to be responsible for your emotional energy and the amount of, of input that you're able to put here, as well as so tenderly hold client care because I was never really individually responsible for client welfare before. And so this was just a very different moment. And I had a few, one kind of big case that I'm thinking of that really kind of made me think this could be dangerous, right? Dangerous to my mm -hmm. well-being as well as not best for a client. And the amount of consultation I needed and the amount of support I needed, it really was this wake-up call that all of these invisible things that I'd leaned on that I didn't even know I was leaning on made it possible to say yes. And now I had to realize saying yes means also being able to give myself all those protections, all the structure, and all the backing as well as the support from other colleagues 
for maybe supervision that I paid for from consultation groups that I was a part of, and that needed to come into place. And so I was saying yes, more cautiously, but in a more thoughtful and more kind of well-informed way where I was really seeing all of the pieces that have to come together to say yes. And that's what I mean by it's got to be an absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, no, I hear that. Well, and it sounds like there's like lessons from the pre-licensed days and then lessons that are similar, but different from being licensed and actually having your own practice. And I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but I know for me, um, one of the things I've noticed is when I was pre-licensed, I had different reasons to say yes. So maybe that was, you have a certain amount of couple hours you need. There's a certain amount of kid hours you need. There's a certain amount of urgency of like, and we seem very similar in terms of very goal oriented and task driven and like motivated where there was this own like self-inflicted pressure of like, I want to get licensed as quickly as possible. I want to be the first in my cohort to get licensed. I want to, you know, all of those things. And so the yeses kind of met that goal, right. Of getting licensed quicker, you know, getting more experience, um, learning, you know, all these different pieces. But when you're saying yes in private practice, it's actually a different set of values and a different set of yeses that you're checking off, right? Because it's not just your income. It's not just, you know, all of those pieces. It's like, what type of clinician do I want to be? How do I want to feel in my private practice? How do I want my days to end? How much stress can I hold individually? Like you're saying, not having a team of support, not having that person to call or knock on their door right away to ask questions. It's like, what does it feel like to be congruent in your values as a private practice clinician and as a business owner and really recognizing your limits. And when um, saying yes is not only a disservice to yourself, but a disservice to your client, because maybe they're not going to heal as quickly, or, you know, you might still help them, but you might not be quite the right fit, or you might delay some of that progress. Or like you were speaking into, very important to talk about is like that safety piece of really protecting yourself, whether that's your license or whether that's physically because you're a solo practitioner in your own office late at night or whatever that looks like. And so learning what your values are and not compromising on them because that's your livelihood. That's who you are. And that's so important to protect. I think sometimes we look at our clients first, but we also need to look at ourselves as well and what type of business model we're creating. And is that sustainable? Is that a recipe for burnout or is that a recipe to resent our, our field or our clients because we're saying yes to the wrong ones or we're saying yes to the wrong schedule. (laughs) There's like so many components to the yes conversation, but, um, I really appreciate your honesty and you sharing those different pieces because I think that's so relatable. And, um, I feel like in a certain sense, it's like a continual lesson. Like, I feel like every time I learn a yes lesson, it's like, Oh, and then next month there's another version of it that comes up because it's a constant Mm -hmm. learning of, you know, what our needs are. And we're not, um, you know, stagnant individuals. We have multifaceted parts of who we are that show up in the clinical room or in our business structure. So I really like that permission to kind of learn, um, when to say a wholehearted yes. And when to really listen to that boundary or that gut feeling of, you know what, just because it's a good opportunity doesn't mean it's a great opportunity. Doesn't mean it's the one for me. And that's a hard lesson to learn. Absolutely. And for me, I find it is my nature to say yes. And that initial gut is usually like, yeah, I can handle that. And that's exciting because I'm so learning oriented and growth oriented, but I've learned, especially as I've gotten both older as well as 
kind of older chronologically and years wise, but also older meaning in the practice and kind of in the clinical work is to take the mindful pause. If I don't have to Mm -hmm. say yes or no right away, I wait because in the waiting, I get to kind of have that, you know, knee jerk, like, wow, that would be so cool. Of course I'd love to teach that class. I've never taught that before. And then overnight and with fresh eyes in the morning is like, wait, I've never taught that class before. And I'm somebody who scours the literature and really does put their heart and soul into curriculum development. And the passion comes through in the teaching, but that's a lot of work. Where in my schedule would I put all of that preparation work? What will it be like to teach a three-hour seminar late at night when I don't usually do clinical work that, that late? What does my clinical day look like the next day? Those questions are they're not my gut reaction and they're not the strongest voice, but they're really important. And it's the wisdom that's almost been honed. That voice has been honed from the years of all the lessons of yes that you're talking about. And so (laughs) if I can, I really wait. If I don't have to say yes right away, or even if someone says, I'd like to know right away, I'm urgent. I say, Ooh, okay. The client feels urgent, but can I sit and can I stay with my own immediate reaction and then wait? And that really helps me to mindfully tap into that wisdom think about the past experiences, the if-then patterns I've created. Well, if I do that, then probably what will happen is May of 20, you know, 15, when I, you know, said yes to teaching six class, you know, and my mind will go there and I'm able to then make a decision that is a little bit more gut reaction plus all of that experience that has been often, like I said, learned through pain or hurts or through the clashes between your values and the schedule and the stress. And, you know, you were saying, how do I show up each day? And also I'm like, how do I show up as a wife or a friend or a daughter? I mean, all of those pieces for me, it takes sitting with it a little bit and not rushing to say anything right away. And that's usually when I make the best informed decisions. And my husband now is just so good at it. I'm like, I came home, you know, I come home and I'm like, I've got this cool opportunity. And he just gives me like a, okay. And I, I look at him. I'm like, I'm going to take the night to think about it because he, he can kind of know, he knows my nature. Of course I want to say yes. And the enthusiasm is not so bad, but just because I'm enthusiastic doesn't mean I actually have to incorporate it into my schedule or that now is the right time. That can be something I kind of put in the background and say, maybe for another day. And that's one lesson I think I've really learned in private practice is you can't do it or you won't do it really well all at once. And it's okay to have various seasons where you're focused on one thing or two things rather than needing to do all of them at once. And that's very different. Like you were saying, pre-license to license, Mm pre-license, I was like, do it all simultaneously. More is more because (laughs) you're working toward the goal. Whereas later you're like, I'm not working toward necessarily a certain goal anymore in terms of licensure or all of that. Can it be more values driven? And can I be a little more focused in one or two areas and do them really well because depth and kind of really feeling good and fulfilled in the work that you're doing maybe becomes more important and definitely has for me. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like there's this piece too with um, maybe when you're pre-licensed or accruing your hours, it's almost like you're applauded when you do more. It's like when you check in with people, they say, where are your clinical sites? And you list, I'm here, I'm here. I do this, I do that. It's like, wow. It almost gives you like this false, this false sense of confidence in a certain sense to be like, well, I'm doing this. And I started this new group and I, you know, it has this kind of like self-inflated puffiness to it where maybe when you're Mm -hmm. licensed, it's not so much like I actually find it a turnoff sometimes when I talk to 
to other clinicians and they talk about, oh, I have these 12 hour days and I do this and I do that. And I'm thinking, but you're licensed. You make such good money an hour. Like, why would you be doing that to yourself? Like, it's not even something to applaud because it's like, I don't want to be a burnt out clinician or that's not something to be proud of that you have no weekend time because you're also working on this project and that project. And it's almost the, to me, I feel like as I have been reevaluating my private practice and the way that I want to show up and totally speaking into what you said about what type of wife, what type of mother, what type of friend am I not? And also what type of business owner am I? I'm thinking about like, what type of life do I want to live? What type of business do I want to, you know, create or, you know, walk out in And maybe before the concept was more like action oriented, doing oriented, where now it's more like living oriented. Like this is a lifestyle. This is a sustainable business model. And it's not sustainable when you say yes to absolutely everything. Um, If anything, you become time poor instead of like, you might have tons of money in your bank account, but if you don't get to go to your kid's soccer game or you don't get to meet up with friends after work or you don't have even energy to talk to your partner when you get home from work, that's a red flag. So, um, I definitely feel like my values have shifted and I've just become more aligned with who I am and what life I want to live. And that translates to being human and it translates to being a therapist and a business owner, but they need to be in alignment for me to really be successful. Um, but I really want to circle back because I'm imagining anyone that's listening is already so inspired by all the things you're listing and all the things you're sharing. But one of the biggest yes you said yes to was starting a private practice. So can you kind of walk us to where you were at in that time period where you realized maybe there was a pool of like, I think I can do this, or maybe you were feeling burnt out off of certain jobs. Can you kind of take us back to that time period and, and how you chose your yes? And was it calculated? Was it risk oriented? Walk us through all the steps. Sure. So having been in university counseling centers for the last year of my PhD program. And then I had, uh, in PhD programs, you have a match and you do internships somewhere. And I did my internship at another university counseling center and stayed on and did my two, you know, 2000 hours for, for postdoc. And how I knew was in some ways I had a lot of variety in my schedule, but I felt somewhat bored, which told me that I had almost outgrown that work that I was doing there. Right. I had Mm. looking at what I'd been able to do there. I said yes to a lot of the training opportunities and got a lot of that, but I felt like what else is there? Right. I don't feel like I can just transition to being licensed here and feel completely fulfilled because it was really great for training. It didn't feel right for, like you were saying, creating that lifestyle. I wanted more autonomy. And like most things at a university level, um, most of academia is very hierarchical and bureaucratic. And so change can be slower and it needs to go through a number of avenues. And I wanted more freedom to do, to try things out, to experiment. I'm somebody who it's almost like kinetic learning. I have to do the experience to, to get something from it. Um, and I really felt like, I'm ready. I'm ready to have more. The things that I really felt I needed were flexibility and autonomy. And I also wanted a certain level of responsibility, given that in the hierarchy, being newly licensed, I would be at the bottom of the totem pole. And I had been in in terms of being a trainee. I, I felt like I'm ready to take on more responsibility. And I knew 
in having talked to other people who had side, I did a lot of talking to people who had side private practices, but were working at the university. And they gave me a lot of tips, how to set up your NPI and tax ID, um, how to kind of create a site today page, maybe how to start with low overhead. Could I rent an office for a day or two and then kind of build up? And so they gave me a lot of ideas and knowing that they could do it on the side, I was like, well, they're using the university counseling thing as the stable thing. Why don't I teach as the stable thing and then start the private practice? And so I decided, like you said, to take the calculated risks. I really felt I needed the flexibility, needed the autonomy, and wanted to experiment more. And so when I took that leap, I had a lot of friends that I leaned on for both practical and instrumental support, as well as emotional support. And looked at an office space and just said, okay, let's, let's do it. One of the calculated risk pieces was I joined a couple insurance panels because I thought that might be this way to have a stepping stone. I knew that ultimately I didn't want to be on the panels forever, but they were really helpful in, I want to say the first month and a half I was in practice, I was almost completely full. So I, I, I'd heard how hard it was to start, but I also think that when you are on insurance panels, there's another layer of people finding you. And I didn't really even have to do my own marketing because I had a lot of that marketing. I was connected to some university counseling centers here, um, student groups, um, as well as having the insurance panels. And so that felt like with teaching is the stable gig. Um, and, and by stable, I mean every semester, every quarter saying yes to yeah. at least one or two where I knew, okay, that income's coming in and being on insurance panels, I knew that I could, that was enough stability to be able to jump into some of the unknown. And I did find an office where the rent was doable and me renting out two days a week actually made less sense than just having it the entire time. And so each time I felt like I couldn't do it, I actually just remembered this. I had actually applied to work at an agency. And as I was about to say yes to taking that agency, I realized that with a little more risk, I would actually be making a lot more on my own. And I had to really be honest with myself. Can I take on that risk, even though with it is going to come a higher reward? And part of that is being really honest with yourself. I know that I am the kind of person that can do that, but there's nothing wrong with some people saying, I like the stability of this. And I always want private practice to be a side gig. I need the stability. I want the stability or have to have the stability for family reasons or uh, paying off loans and doing the, you know, forgiveness programs. And so I think it's being really honest with yourself in those moments, mm-hmm. right? There was no have to anymore. I didn't ha- I was already licensed. It was, what do I want to do? And sometimes that's a harder question than what do I have to do? Because there are mm-hmm. more options, but I got really serious and said, I actually think that that extra risk is something I'm willing to take on with the excitement of, I get to have the full reward on my own. And that was for me motivating. And so I didn't Mm -hmm. say yes to the agency job. And I said, I'm going to use teaching and I'll join insurance panels. That's how I'm going to do it. But I'm going to start in private practice. And like I said, within the first couple months, because of the insurance panels, most of my caseload was full. And so I felt really like there was this moment where I thought it is always hardest before you jump. 
And I am not mm-hmm. sugarcoating. There have been many other challenges along the way. There have been various iterations, how I went on maternity leave, how I came back. Recently, I've taken on associates. I mean, there are all these different chapters. So I'm not saying like, oh, you think it's hard to start a private practice? Jump in, do it. It'll be easier. But it really was <laughs> enlightening to me that sometimes, most times, for me, it feels a lot harder before you're in it. There is this kind of way that anxiety blows up what it is. And there was a moment I had midsummer. I'd started in April. It was around my birthday in June. And I said, I'm in private practice. I have a full caseload. I've got a website. I've got an office. Like I'm here. And I had this moment where I was like, I have thought so much about this And here I am, I'm I'm living it. I'm living that. And it took so much support and it took a lot of, um, kind of problem solving and kind of many talks with, you know, loved ones as well as practical talks with other psychologists. But it it really felt like, oh gosh, I've got to remember this. I've got to imprint this moment in my body. The next time I feel like that thing that I'm on the precipice of is too big, maybe too scary, so unknown. It's like once you lean into it and you're doing it, automatically it becomes a little less scary because you're engaged with it and you're not just looking from the outset and thinking, oh my gosh, it's, it's almost so big. It's like the turning around and seeing your shadow. All of a sudden it's like, oh, okay. There's some practical pieces to be learned here. There's some growing edges, but it's not impossible. And that I really remember that moment around my birthday, a few months into private practice, feeling like most of the work to get there was done six months prior where I began really thinking, what are my values? Let me be honest with myself. What would feel good as stepping stones? What would feel less good as stepping stones? Right? Mm. Where is the value-driven principle that I can offer in? And like I said, my values were flexibility, autonomy, and to be able to really truly experiment. And part of experimenting mm. was I'd like that if there's a risk, I'm going to be the one dealing with the consequence. And if there's a reward, I'm going to be the one being able to cash in on that, right? Either, you know, actually, or, you know, financially, or whether it's more emotional in terms of celebrating a win. And so some of that was, I was ready for that extra layer of responsibility and to have the natural consequences. If you're not really passionate about what you do, or you're not very effective, your clients will let you know by not staying with you. And that was really both scary and very exciting because I felt this level of, again, the autonomy as well as the responsibility of if I do something or don't do something, I'm directly going to see in the natural consequence of what's happening, I'm going to get that real-time feedback. And that for me was so exciting when in agency work or when you're in a much more structured, multi-layer structure there's this sense of the invisibility of it. If you're not a great clinician, it's okay. There are 10,000 other students that need a therapist. And so sometimes I was very eager for how am I doing and what's that natural consequence? And I really felt like some of those values were, were guided me to taking that leap and saying, yeah, I can handle the higher risk because of the values that are really guiding my decisions right now. And then I, I was able to stick to them when something didn't work to say, Pauline, this is what you wanted. It doesn't work. And that hurts. Mm -hmm. But why? Why didn't it work? What might work better? Let's experiment with that. And to be able to have the autonomy to do it and the flexibility to do it in my way, I feel like I really thrived in that. And it, it felt good. And over time, I took on less teaching. 
when I came back from maternity leave, I completely got off insurance panels. So it's almost like I created some of those structural supports for myself and then slowly yeah. took off some of those training wheels as I, you know, as I ventured into more and more change, as I felt more confident mm-hmm. and got my sea legs. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really love about what you're sharing and just like the encouragement that I'm sure everyone that's listening is feeling is there's a sense of really knowing who you are and knowing what you need. Like when you were talking about, um, even your leap to start a private practice where you've got really clear on, I also love teaching and that's going to be my, you know, steady income or, you know, all of that. Like you also knew yourself and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but like thinking about, not that everyone would experience this, but maybe if you had seen other clinical, um, you know, clients in a different capacity and that was your steady income, and then you were doing private practice, that might've been a recipe for burnout because you were using the same skill set, but maybe not getting paid as much, or maybe seeing clients that weren't in alignment with who you are and what you're passionate about. But I almost think like, whether this was intentional or not, the fact that you were teaching, that's using that other multi-passionate part of yourself that's fulfilling, that maybe feeds into your, um, you know, your client load, your, you know, private practice. You're also getting more exposure by teaching, you know, other fellow therapists or therapists to be that maybe then would refer to you or would maybe, you know, also need a therapist or whatever that could look like. So it sounds like just my takeaway from what you're sharing is the more aligned we are with who we are and allowing us to honor those boundaries and honor those yeses and honor those no's, it actually helps our private practice grow. It actually helps any entrepreneurial endeavor that we embark on because we, it's sustainable. It is, you know, in the right direction for our growth and for our long-term success. And I love the fact that you even touched on like, you know, maternity leave, or now your business has grown to associates and what that looks like. And I know we've talked about this already, but would love to have you come back and share more because I think there is so much to building a private practice that is not linear and is not just stagnant. It is always evolving just in the same way that as humans, we're always experiencing so many different layers of feelings and lived experiences while we're also a therapist or while we're also a business owner. So would love to, to have you back at some point to share, you know, how did you go on maternity leave? Like that's a conversation in itself of like how, if you're pregnant or your spouse is pregnant, like how do you prepare for those important steps and how do you, you know, take steps that your future self will thank you for. And also having the courage to let go of maybe, like you said, those training wheels, whether that's insurance panels and like taking that brave step of saying, okay, I think my practice is at a spot where I'll actually flourish even more. I'll actually grow even more. And like you said, it is a calculated risk that comes with consequences. Maybe if you don't market correctly or you don't have the right steps in place, it might come back and bite you or it might actually produce even more for you, a better life, life balance, better income, better all the things that you really want as you build a a private practice. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am so encouraged and I just want to keep talking. I feel like we need to continue this conversation over more coffee cups of just lattes and all the things, but um, thank you so much. And is there anything um, that the audience should know in terms of a website to follow you on or social media or any ways that they can connect with you and continue to learn from you. 
Absolutely. Well, my website is just therapywithpauline.com. I am a new blogger. That's something I'm excited to do. I am not a social media person, neither personally nor professionally, but it is something on my 2022 list to dip my toe into and experiment with. There are lots of feelings I have about that, but something I'd I'd like to get into. And so stay tuned with that. Um, And again, I'm licensed in California and New York. I've got three associates who are available for taking on clients, even though right now I'm waitlisted. And so, um, my crack practice is here and, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to, to share these pieces. Cause I know that the experiences of others have really spoken new life for me and given me new perspectives. And so I hope that some piece of what I said was helpful to somebody else. And I would love to come back on and talk about how our practice changes alongside the changes that we go through. And so thank you so much for having me, Claire. I really appreciate it. And just wishing everybody who's out there and listening, um, lots of luck as they look inward are honest with themselves, take some leaps and get the support they need to be able to flourish. Thank you for tuning in to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as that helps other clinicians and therapreneurs find our community and thrive through our offerings. Want to take your business a step further? Visit theflourishingtherapreneur.com or our Instagram with the same handle. Connect with our free community or sign up for an upcoming course to help cultivate your thriving business and endeavors so you can flourish personally and professionally. Until next time, I'm your host, Claire Blakey, and I believe you deserve to flourish as a therapreneur.